The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Moses opens this way, in the beginning. Now this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, and I'm hoping that in the next hour you may see some things that, from a a perspective, maybe you've never seen them before. Uh, That's what happens when we just focus on the same thing over a long haul and pray, God, let me see, let me see, I want to see what's there. Now one thing that's hit me with respect to this text, in the beginning, that, that one, those three words, it's just, it's loaded with mercy if we can feel it. Because the very people that get these words were all living on the other side of the fall. God could have wiped out humanity after that sin. Everyone is in Adam, and death was the reality. And yet it's to that people, they get a Bible. Don't count that lightly. They get to read in the beginning when they should have been experiencing the end already. But we have a God who doesn't initially wipe out rebels. He lets us read in the beginning. And he's going to lay out here a perspective, like Pastor Tom was saying, that we don't have. No, this is pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-evil. Everything was very good. And what it's going to do is not only tell us what was, but what should be, and help us anticipate what will be in the new creation when Eden is reestablished and when there's a new heavens and a new earth that will look somewhat like but better than what we're going to read about here, and that will never, ever come to an end. But I just want you to feel that the people who read Genesis 1 are a people who are sinners. Not only that, I want us to see something about the structure of this book. Look with me over at Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now, we were having an internal dialogue, um, and uh, not all three of us who get to teach this week were in agreement, but um, I'm of the persuasion that every one of these titles, and there's ten of them in the book, these are the generations of, and every one, I think every one is a heading. Now, what I want us to see is that there's a title here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And then what flows, what comes is the the products of the heavens and the earth. It's going to tell us something that that came out of it. And what's amazing is when we get to Genesis 2-5, mankind are not on the scene. There's no humans yet. Yet we're going to read about them in Genesis chapter 1. No, it's right here that the story that's going to carry us all the way to the book of Revelation starts. It doesn't start in Genesis 1-1. The story 
as in a running narrative, starts, I believe, right here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now look in Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then we get the products that flow from Adam. And in this instance, rather than a story, it happens to be a story like in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Now we get a genealogy. And it's a straight line, linear genealogy. It, it doesn't focus on all the descendants. It just says A gave birth to B, B gave birth to C, C gave birth to D. Ten generations from Adam to Noah, and then we get Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then, if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. You're starting to get a pattern. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his ways. Noah walked with God. Then, we go over to chapter 10, verse 1. And these are the generations of the sons of Noah. There's ten of these that walk through the book. And the book is structured this way around these, these generations. These are the generations of. The book of the generations of. These are the generations of. And these are the generations of. This is actually how the Gospel of Matthew is going to begin. And this is the book of the generations, or the genealogy, it says in my ESV. But it's the exact same word from the Greek text here. The book of the generations of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the pattern that's structuring the whole, the whole book of Genesis. It's all being tied together, and it's focused on generations. We're going to see that genealogy matters a lot in this book. Offspring matters a lot in this book. When we get to Genesis 3 tomorrow morning, we're going to see, actually, there's, there's two lines that actually matter most. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring who are hoping in the offspring of the woman. Did you hear that? That is the group of descendants who have their eye fixed on a single male descendant. And the generations here are actually split up. Seven of them tell the story of the good guys, and three of them... Tell the story of the rebels, offspring of the serpent, offspring of the woman, hoping in the ultimate offspring. So what I want us to see is that there's a green banner up top. And my question is, why didn't Moses start with Genesis 2-4? Why does he give us Genesis 1-1 through 2-3? And what I want you to feel today is that there was something so much more imperative than talking about history, talking about chronology, talking about science. I don't think that's unimportant. I think we can go to this text to wrestle with those questions, but you have to feel the weightiness of the fact that we've got a people who are in the, in the wilderness for 40 years who are opening up their Bibles to this text. A people that have been told, you will die in the wilderness. Why? Because of sin. Sin moves us into Genesis 1. And yet, rather than wiping them out, He gives them a Bible. Letting them see who He is and who they're supposed to be in His world. It's, it's just a manifold expression of mercy. That this people who are on a journey, picture them, 40 years... 600,000 men 
that takes us up probably around 2 million individuals journeying through this wilderness in a space that is, I teach in Minnesota, in a space that is as big from the cities down to the border of Iowa for 40 years. 2 million people on a camping expedition. That's all the space we're talking about. A small amount of turf from the northern border of Iowa up to the Twin Cities, two-hour drive, and they're going to be there for for 40 years, waiting and following, waiting and following. Not going random. No, that was their problem before. They went random. They went their own way. Now they're waiting and following, having to learn when God moves, we move. When He says, wait, we wait. And as they journey around every hill, around every tree, they're wondering, is our next stop Aunt Ellie's grave? Uncle Brian's grave? How about Grandma and Grandpa? Are we going to walk by their tomb again? Feel it because of sin, because they failed to trust in God. Death, death, death. They were a walking mortuary for 40 years. Moses says in Psalm 90 that they should have been living 70 to 80 years. If you've got 20-year-olds, now they're dying at 60. If they were 20 years old at the beginning of the conquest, sorry, at the beginning when the the 12 uh, spies were sent in, that was the youngest type of warrior that you could be. And now all the warriors are going to die by the time they're 60 over that 40-year period. That means the life expectancy has gone low and the death rate has increased because they would have expected a longer lifetime. And they're dying. And it's to that group that God in His mercy gives them a Bible with Genesis 1 up front. I want you just to feel as we begin to walk through this text, be thinking about life and death. I want to learn how to live and not die because all of my older relatives are dead. And it's because they failed to understand who God was and what their place was in God's world. That's the the sense that we should feel when we open up our Bibles. That life and death is at stake. But how many of us are in churches where our pastor's preaching through Genesis? First thought. See evolutionist, creationist, old earth, young earth? We don't feel the weight of life and death. And I want to propose that the reason there's a green banner up there called the preface before the actual story, remember, all I'm saying is, I'm not saying that Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is not history. It's history. It's just laid out that way. But what I'm wanting to say is that there's a reboot in Genesis 2, 4. A reboot so that mankind are not yet created yet. And Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is set out as a beginning, like like. I want to give you a lens up front through which to understand all the rest of the story that's going to take you from Genesis 2-4 to the book of Revelation. I want to give you a lens for understanding who I am, who you are, and what this world is. These are heavy, heavy questions, big questions of life that are really at the core of every person's worldview. And so... There, there's different kinds of questions, right? There's, there's questions like, um, do you like meatloaf? And whether or not you do, 
doesn't really have a big impact on your day-to-day living experience. I didn't used to like meatloaf. And then all of a sudden, some, I don't know what happened. Now I enjoy meatloaf. But apart from, I don't know, Teresa might make, my wife Teresa might make meatloaf once a year, maybe. I don't know, maybe not even that. If I come to your house, you can make meatloaf. Um, it doesn't have a radical impact on my, my life, but you take a person, say at the prison, who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, who's sitting there with absolutely no hope, who's looking at their past, carrying all kinds of baggage, broken relationships, broken work, uh, lack of education, uh, broken ties with the rest of the world, and all of a sudden you give them Jesus, give them new life, give them new purpose, a sense that God can take my brokenness and cleanse me with the, the righteousness of Jesus being counted as mine, even though I was a sinner. Everything changes. The, that, those are fundamental. Who or what is in charge of reality? What's the problem with this world? What's the solution? Get new answers to those questions and everything changes in life. How you face suffering changes in life. How you think about oatmeal changes in life. And I think Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is actually designed to do that for people who've been pursuing death and now are wrestling with how can I live and not die? Like like they're opening this text and God's wanting to say, okay, I'm mercifully coming to you as sinners, taking the initiative to enter into your world, not wiping you out, but, but granting an opportunity that you don't deserve. Here's the Bible, given through Moses to a bunch of sinful people. And I'm going to just clarify for you who I am, who you're supposed to be, what this world is that you're in. What's the problem with this world? And I think even in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3, hint at what the solution is. So let's look at the text. And as we do, let's just pray together. Dear Lord, I thank you that you give us this opportunity to open your book. I pray now that you would grant, oh Lord, grant us grace to hear and eyes to see. And I pray that you'd stir affections. Just work in us, God. Help us meet you fresh. We, we are a needy people. We're needy church leaders. We're needy husbands, needy sons, needy friends. We just don't do things well. And, and we're weak, and yet you are strong. You're upholding all things right now by the word of your power, moment by moment. And that includes bringing us here and giving us this book. So, Grant that we could enter in and see things truly and beautifully and celebrate them like you celebrate them. We're not left to ourselves any different than the first audience who got this material. And yet, unlike most of them, you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. Moses' audience, even the new generation, didn't have that, most of them. But it's us upon whom the end of the ages has come, says Paul. And they, the prophets like Moses, were writing for our benefit, for our instruction, 
So help us learn now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we want to identify a few things in this verse. First of all, there's a time marker. In former times, God spoke to us through his prophets, but anybody know how to finish it? In these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son, through his Son. That's where we're living right now. We're living in the last days. Some people render it the end times. In contrast, this book starts in the beginning. So it takes us backwards, and it's going to take us all the way back pre-fall, pre-sin, pre-brokenness, pre-my pain, pre-the problems that I'm trying to minister to in my people. And in doing so, it's going to help shape not only what was, but what could be and what will be, giving us a lens for understanding the world. So... What we see here is this this language of God. Now, is there, just just think about what you know about Genesis 1. Let your eye even move down into Genesis 1, 1, verse 2. And then even to the very beginning of verse 3, like the first three words. So take Genesis 1, 1 up to the first three words of verse 3 and tell me, what you learn about this God. He creates his spirit and then it has a word that creates things. So he, this one right here, actively enters into the world creating something that was not. And we call that what was not heavens and the earth. He also has a spirit that's hovering over the waters. We only see this verb show up one other time in the Pentateuch, that's what we call the first five books of Moses. And it's at the very end, so there's a frame that goes on. Deuteronomy 32, it says that the glory cloud, remember the the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, that wiped out the Egyptians, that met Israel at Mount Sinai, that cloud, it says in Deuteronomy 32, as it led them out of Egypt through the wilderness, hovered over them, like a mother caring for its, its chicks. That's the, the word. And it actually uses the same uh, word that we have in verse 2, without form. An uninhabitable waste. That's what the Spirit here was hovering over, and it's what the glory cloud was carrying them through. That the waste is compared to the wilderness, and into that wilderness-type world, God wants to... Make a garden and create a paradise. But, and, and it's intriguing that Isaiah, when he's reflecting on that glory cloud that led Israel out of Egypt, he calls it the Spirit. So, that, that was the presence of God. That's what we have here, the presence of God. We have God the Creator who enters into His world by His Spirit. And then what, was, what else did you say, Jay? He speaks. That's the verb. What might we, what noun might we use? 
if we were to take the verb and put a noun there instead? Pardon? A word. So, so we see something that points ahead to further realities right here. We see a creator who has a spirit and who speaks everything into existence by his word. That's Trinitarian talk. That's Father, Son, Spirit language. God the Father is the creator working through his spirit by his word, making it happen. This verb to create, if you just type it into your Strong's Concordance, your NIV Concordance, you're going to find out up, if you tag up that number and then look at all the occurrences of this verb create, bara, it never has any other subject other than God. In all the Bible, from the beginning to the end, God's the only one who actually creates. The Bible withholds this verb and only gives it to Him. He's the only one who creates. Now, by its nature, it doesn't mean create out of nothing. Because we know in Genesis 5, verse 1, God created man, and man was made out of the dust. But it is an act that is solely restricted to God, and here it's just given as this, this big picture, God created heavens and earth, and that's the last question. What is this heavens and earth? How are we to understand it? Does it include Satan? Or is it just sun, moon, and stars? We're going to see this same word show up if you look at verse 8. He called the expanse heaven. Or verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Verse 15, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. That expanse is what we would term the atmosphere. The birds fly on the bottom of the expanse. And then also all of outer space with the sun, moon, and stars put in the top of it. All of that is the heavens. So is, is it limited to that? And... We can use other Scripture to interpret Scripture. What we do know is that by the time in chapter 3, there is a serpent that is more crafty than any other beast of the earth that God had made, past tense. So there's a serpent that was made by God. Notice he's not equal with God, not eternal with God. The serpent was made by God. That's by the time we get to chapter 3. Here, though, all we have is heavens and earth, and so what I do is I jump to Psalm 148, because it's the clearest place for me to actually see what I think is being given to us. So if you want to just jump over there, you can see what I'm doing, or just listen. I'm using Psalm 148 as a divine commentary to help me understand what it is that God made at this point in the creation of the world. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Okay, that's good. I'm with you. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. 
Praise Him, sun, moon, and praise Him, you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? Because He commanded, and they were created. He established them forever and gave a decree that shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. Okay, we just had a contrast there. Heavens, earth. He created all of it. In the heavens, angels, sun, moon, and stars. Spiritual beings and the earthly, or sorry, the uh, natural beings that in some ways point to a greater reality. So that we can even call it the heaven of heavens. The, the highest heaven. It's still a heaven. And the angels are often even compared to the stars. That, that somehow seeing all the stars in the sky even points to greater spiritual realities beyond. That at the end of our universe, there's still more. And it's more heaven. But it's the sphere of God and the angels. And God made it on this beginning. But not only that, the earth. Praise the Lord from the earth. Praise Him, you sea creatures, all you deeps. Fire, hail, snow, and mist. Stormy wind, fulfilling His word. Do you have a God that's that big? Sleet is obeying the voice of God. Falling where God commands it to go. Winds blowing. Tornadoes. Tsunamis. Fire. Hail. Fulfilling His Word. Mountains and all hills. Fruit trees and all cedars. Beasts and all livestock. Creeping things and flying birds. Oh, Yes, even humans, kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, rulers of the earth, young men, maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. God created the heavens and the earth. In literary talk, it's called a merism. So you might get that in high school English class or literature class. It's when you take two polar opposites... Two extremes, and it counts for everything in between. So, we're looking here at the unseen heavens, the seen heavens, and our planet. God made it all in the beginning. The great mover, speaking, and it was so. I'm going to consider implications a little bit later, but we move on to verse 2. Before I go there, let me just make a point. No one was there. Picture ground zero. The video of the plane crashing into the tower. The chaos, the fear. Eyewitnesses tracking every move. Such a weird age that we live in, that we can have people on the ground. I mean, I remember as a college student watching the Persian Gulf War, the very first war in history that was actually recorded so that you and I could watch it in our living rooms in the early 90s. How many remember that? 
First video footage of missiles being launched off and blowing up cities. Eyewitness accounts. So who gave us Genesis 1? How far along do we have to get till we get uh, humans on the scene? And we don't even have a dog that could bark it out for us. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen, what is seen, was not made out of that which was visible. And what should this awaken within our soul? Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created everything. Everything. Consider that thought in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Right now, God is speaking, upholding. You and me, every breath. And if he stops speaking, we will not exist. That's the God that we're talking about. And because of that, if we can just grasp it. Oh, a people, think about Moses' audience, who entered in and saw the giants in the land, And all they saw was shadow. All they saw was kneecap. And something in their mind said, our God is too small. We can't go in. We can't defeat them. Joshua and Caleb are saying, yes, we can. Ten spies saying no. And the entire generation says we can't do it. Failing to recognize how big this God was. And John in Revelation, at the end, with new creation in view, is just wanting to awaken affections. And I want to suggest Moses is wanting to awaken affections. God is wanting to say to a bunch of people who've been living for their own way, looking at, small, looking at the world in a small way, facing suffering without a big view of God, facing challenge in relationships without a big view of God, to just step back and say, He's upholding all things. And then to consider, in light of the rest of the story, how this big God can be for me. But just know this, at this point, the fact that He's giving this this message to a bunch of sinners that should be worthy of death, and He's instead giving them revelation... It it strongly implies, right from the beginning, we don't have to even jump into uh, the call of Abraham, the the deliverance from Egypt, uh, the sacrifices at the tabernacle. We don't have to even go there. All we've got to do is see in the beginning and recognize this God is bestowing mercy on me. He's actually speaking to me. He's calling to me a sinner and He's giving me a picture of Him that I have never seen before calling me to surrender and move to recognize worthy are you, and that is the path of life and not death. There's where our text begins to highlight solution. Problem? I haven't been living here. I haven't been seeing you in this way. I haven't been surrendering to your bigness. Instead, I've been worrying. I've been living for myself, and you're much bigger than that. 
and to think that you, God, are the one who's intruded into my pain, into my brokenness, into my lost job, and you've given me your word, calling me to know you, to follow you, offering me life instead of death. Worthy are you, O God, because you created everything. That's that's just the logic. This is foundational for worship in all the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. I just want you to know we're going to 2-3, this pace. See you in the morning. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All I want us to see right now is that this God who created everything in the beginning didn't make it complete at the start. In fact, we're going to see that this perfect world is not a complete world even when you get to the end of Genesis 2-3. It's not complete in that humanity is going to be given a purpose, a responsibility, a call to move a display of God to the ends of the earth. And it's not done yet. It's a perfect world, but not a complete world. And right now we see that he starts in a world of chaos. There is unmet potential in this text. It calls it formless and void. Elsewhere, these same words are translated uninhabitable and uninhabited. Formless, void. That is empty. You have spheres, and you've got kings, rulers of those spheres. And these two words, I believe, help set a trajectory for us for understanding. When he starts moving, starts doing, we've got this this general statement, he created everything, and then we're going to see him begin to act, speak, do, make, separate, Bless. And all of these activities of God, and we're going to see over the six days of His work week, there's going to be eight activities. And the eight activities that He does are structured in a pattern that answers the issue set up right here in this text. Form and void. Uninhabitable is going to be made a habitation that can then be inhabited with creature kings, overseers of each specific area. And the first three days are all focused on taking what is formless and giving it form. And then the next days are going to be focused on taking that which is empty and filling it. It was formless and void... And there was darkness. This is how God started things. And and I have to say, He must... I mean, everything that's written in this account is here with purpose. And I'm thinking about Israel. The big suggestion, um, as we walk through the story of Exodus, is that Moses would have written, he would have had to write all of his books in the last 40 years of his life. 40 years living in Pharaoh's house. 40 years, so there it's like MIT Egypt, right? He, we're told that he's, he's learning all the great sciences, the government policies, mathematics, 
languages in order, ultimately, God's equipping him that he could rule a nation. Then, there's a key part of his future ministry that isn't accounted for. What's that? His next 40 years of training. Living in the desert, right. So he's, he's getting camping down and 40 years of it. And then the last 40 years of his life at 80 is when he takes Israel out of Egypt and it takes them three and a half weeks to get from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And they're walking the whole time. What that suggests to me is that it's probably not in that three-and-a-half-week window that he wrote Genesis. Which means that Genesis is a book that comes to us after the Golden Calf episode and the sin there, and very possibly not even until after Israel's 40-year... during the the 38 years in the wilderness... That it's during that window that he's writing this book. And so think about what role did darkness play in Israel's history pre-Sinai. Just think about who was reading this book. Who, who, how, what's, what's Moses' life experience? And he, he paints a picture, God paints a picture through Moses of everything starting in darkness. And then, very first word, let there be light. So what, what is this doing for Israel? What in their experience could identify with this type of a pattern? Pardon? Passover, blood on the doors. So that is that happens at night, yes. But that plague is specifically against all the firstborn in the land. What's a previous, a previous punishment that was given? three days of it. But it specifically says Israel's living in light and Egypt's in dark. Those who follow Yahweh are in the light and Egypt's in the dark. That light begins to lead them out of Israel at the Passover, out of Egypt at the Passover. And it says Israel sta- Egypt stays in the dark Israel's in the light, and then the light ultimately wins in this battle. Right here, we're seeing a story wherein light is going to overcome darkness. And it's setting a pattern for us as a reader. This is the pattern. And in fact, it's going to be amazingly beautiful. Spurgeon has a little devotional. Charles Spurgeon, ever heard of him? He has a little devotional where he says, he calls it, Anybody know? First part of the day. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. So read from this devotional. I'm just trying to, as a pastor, I wrote this little book to help you as my flock in the morning and in the evening. It's not what we're going to get in this text. Day one ends after there was evening, there was morning. Morning, evening. Even that structure suggests that dark is at the end. In this text, there was evening, there was morning, day one. 
suggesting that in God's timetable, light always wins. Light always wins. Darkness, let there be light, enters in. Creation was a process here of this unmet potential. There's undifferentiated mass, formless and void. It, it, you, you can't distinguish between the water and the soil and anything else. Uninhabitable and uninhabited, that phrase together only shows up one other time in Jeremiah 4, meaning it lacks clear shape, it lacks distinction of all the parts, land and water, sky and earth, it's, it's all just a jumbled mess. It's, it's without form, it's without void, and then into that world, he's going to make what we see. The world that you and I know. So we come now to just look at some patterns as just before we, we enter in now and trying to get to the message of what we're going to see. Notice right off the bat, most simply, we've got seven days. Now that might seem, yeah, of course we have seven days. But consider that. A day. What does it take to make a day scientifically? Yes, 24 hours, but where do they come from? What, what's happening? Rotation. rotation. Of what? The rotation of the earth in relation to a fixed object of light. Hear that. I worded it very intentionally. The rotation of the earth in relation to a fixed object of light creates a day. It's, a, it's built into the, the way things work. Days are Natural time. How about the month? We don't have our calendars that work this way, but they do elsewhere. Lunar. Lunar. What's talking? What, what, how does the month work? The rising of the uh, full moon to the setting of the opposite. Okay. No moon to a full moon. Okay. So, so the moon goes through its... Um, cycles, and how are those cycles created? What's happening? The moon is going around the earth as the earth revolves around the sun, and so the moon is going, is the different uh, angles of the, light, of the sun's light are hitting the moon at different points. And how long does it take for the moon to get back to the same spot that it was before. 28. I couldn't have answered that exactly. Thank you, Mills. So, 28 days. So, but, but, so the, there, a lunar month is a set, fixed time frame. How about the year? Now we're looking at the revolution of the earth around the sun. What I want you to see is that a week has no fixed point. This is a heavenly designated time frame that, is no, that has no fixed reality here. And it's going to control Israel's history. God's the one who sets it up. God's the one who is the primary agent here. He's the one who is working. And when we get to chapter 2, it's going to say... Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. On the seventh day, God finished the work that He had done. So in six days, He worked. 
This is a work week. God clocks in, he clocks out. There's evening, there's morning, day one, back to work. And he does this for six days, and then he's going to rest on the seventh. There's a six plus one pattern of life, and it's going to become the structure then for Israel's future. So much so that just like the rainbow is the sign of the covenant with Noah and all the world, just like circumcision is called the sign of the covenant with Abraham, the Sabbath, day seven, six plus one, that one up there becomes the sign for Israel, their covenant with God. The Sabbath is the covenant, is the sign of the covenant. And the question is, how does it work? What's it reminding them of? What's it describing to them? What's it telling them? You think about what is the rainbow telling us? What, when we see the rainbow in the heavens, what's it supposed to tell us? In contrast to what our present day society is telling us the rainbow means. What's it supposed to tell us? No more destruction of the earth via a flood. That's mercy, all in order to bring about the possibility of a future offspring deliverer who will crush the serpent who brought us into this mess. Circumcision. It's directly related to the male reproductive organ and a covenant that is hinging on not just offspring making a nation, but a single offspring who will rise and bless all the world. And if you fail to heed my voice within this covenant, you and your offspring will be cut off. That's a pretty graphic image. How about the Sabbath? Sabbath is the goal. Notice that. Six plus one. Six plus one. Don't think Sabbath Sunday. Think Sabbath Saturday. That's how the Jewish calendar worked. It was always the goal of Israel's existence. And when we get to... to the end of the work week, we're going to have a better picture of why that was and what the goal was, what was lost at the fall, and what was to be gained through Israel's pattern. Now, there's a whole bunch of elements that just show up in all these days. Not everyone shows up everywhere, but, but they, they repeat themselves. And just seeing the pattern lets us recognize, wow, this is a very structured text. It's very ordered. It's giving, us, it's giving us great literary form and, and the repetition. It's emphasizing something. What's going on here? And God said. You see that in verse 3. And God said. You see it in verse 6. And God said. You see it in verse 9. These days have this repeated pattern. And it was so. You see that in... Well, there was light in verse 3. But, and it was so, shows up in verse 7. So God said, let us separate the waters. And it was so. Um, verse 11, let's let vegetation sprout up. And it was so. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, verse 15. And it was so. God made a report of his making or his shaping. God did it over and over again. God made the expanse, verse 7. Verse 16, God made the two lights. God 
set them. That is, He did something into the expanse. God called the light day, the darkness He called night, a name-giving formula, an affirmation formula. God saw that it was good. Good shows up seven times in the seven days. But only once is it called very good. When does that show up? There was evening and there was morning. So just notice how how the structure of this, it's set up like a week. It says, it calls it, there's a separation between the day and the night, between the light and the darkness. And then it uses language that we're familiar with. There's evening and there's morning. It seems to clearly be portraying an actual work week of God. Now, into this work week comes this structure. We saw it in verse 2. The earth was without form and it was void. Without form, that is uninhabitable. It is void, that is absent of content. And what we're going to see now, I believe, is that that sets a structure for us for actually seeing this whole week play out before us. And in doing it, God's actually telling us something about Himself and about us and about His world. So all we're doing is getting the big, the big picture and then we're going to dive in and say, so what? So day one, look with me at verse three. The first major activity, God says, let there be light, and there was light. This is the only creative expression of God that actually doesn't say He made it, or created it, or did it. It just was. I think that that has some implications that we'll talk about in one of our future sessions. When it says God is light, is that a metaphor or is it reality? Light is about heat, light is about energy, and you can have none of it. Sorry, and without either one, you cannot have life. And God is not only light, He is life. What would the implications of that be if these are actual 24-hour light-experiencing days. Do you need a sun in order for there to be life? It simply was. It appears into our space and time, light happens. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness night. There was evening, morning, day one. Day two... We move from simply light into this watery chaos. Now when we get to the flood story, we're going to see echoes of this because what the flood does is reverses the creation account. The creation account here moves through water and creates order. What the flood does is it takes the order and returns it back to watery chaos. It's a decreation, and it's a sign of God's judgment. 
And then God's going to restart with one man, one woman, and three boys. It's exactly what we have with the first Adam. Noah and his family is a second Adam. It's a reboot. And then there he's going to restate things like the image of God. He's going to restate the commission that we see in Genesis 1.28, fill the earth, multiply. There's going to be another sin problem related to fruit and nakedness. Adam is getting, uh, there's a new creation happening with the Noah story. So here in day two, there's an expanse. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there's waters that are going to be separated from waters. Waters above, waters below. And it was so. The expanse he's going to call heaven. And that's a first level heaven that's going to, not, not including the angelic sphere, but what I'm suggesting is that the psalmist understood he created the heavens and the earth to include all of it, but now he's saying the expanse, the water above, is going to include all that we think of as atmosphere and all that we think of as space. And then the waters below, he hasn't named them yet, but in day three he's going to call them the seas. But right now they're just the waters below because the sea appears to be necessitating a differentiation between sea and something else, and that doesn't come until day three. So there's this separation of water. Now we move to day three. And in this water below, what happens is there's this land that begins to rise up. I'll throw this out. What happens on this day next is the second event. We've had one event on day one, one event on day two. We get two events on day three. Land appears and vegetation sprouts. Seed-bearing plants like the grain, all grain type, wheat, barley, hay, and then the fruit-bearing plants like apples and oranges, watermelon. I like watermelon. All that happens. What day does that happen on? Three. This is the day when finally you can actually identify in space and time something physical that we can call creation or new life. This is the first place life happens on day three of the original creation. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going to compare the resurrection to seeds planted in the ground that sprout. Here it happens on the third day. We'll talk about that next time. But just remember, the Bible says, the New Testament, Scripture says, on the third day the Christ will rise from the dead. On the third day. And you tell me where in the scripture you're going to find a third day resurrection of the Christ. How are we going to find that? Genesis 1 begins to help us.
Now notice what happens. All those are forms that were void. Sorry, not void, that were formless. They were empty, and all of a sudden, God gives shape. It was undifferentiated matter. Now it's been differentiated, and there's spheres. There's waters above, there's waters below, and now there's land with plant life. And it's only on day four that now we recast. What had form, what, what's been given form is now filled with content. What was uninhabitable has now been made habitable, and now the actual inhabitants are going to be placed there. In the sphere of light is going to be placed these luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But notice that it doesn't actually say the sun. What does it tell us after the third day? Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. Let them be... This is the first time there's a purpose designated for certain elements of the creation. Let them be for seasons, for signs, for days, for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. So this is an earth-centric focused message. And I say that because there's a greater light that's the sun, that's what we would call it, the lesser light, namely the moon, and then the stars. But it's, it's being portrayed here from our perspective. Creation has an earth-centered focus to it. One reason why I don't think maybe, maybe the sun is not mentioned here is because Israel just came out of Egypt. where the Lord went head-to-head with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Who is Yahweh that I should obey Him? Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh asks. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Okay, we'll take ten, ten lessons. And they're the ten plagues. When I, who is Yahweh? He's the one who enters in, and when I say, turn water to blood, it turns to blood. When I say, let light turn into darkness, it turns dark. That's who Yahweh is. And the chief god of the Egyptian pantheon was Shamash, the sun god. And the Hebrew term for sun is Shemesh. Same exact consonants. And I think very likely, God is writing to Israel, not wanting them to confuse in any way any earthly object, any created sphere with the gods of Egypt. They're not gods at all. They're creation. Creation. I'll call it the greater light. The luminaries are made with purpose. Now He comes, and the waters above were separated from the waters below, They're called seas on this day, but the waters below are there, and now He puts the the creatures into the spheres that will rule them. Flying creatures in the sky, and watery creatures into the sea. It specifically uses the verb create again. There was evening and there was morning. The Lord said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly above across the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the sea creatures. He created every living creature that moves. God saw that it was good. And then we get something new. Verse 22, God blessed them saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. He gives the animals a commission to spread out. We're going to see a similar commission in just a second. We come to the last day, and just like there was two things that happened, dry land appeared and vegetation grew, now into that sphere comes land creatures and mankind. It is here that we get speech, extended speeches. The longest speech acts of God occur on day six. Until this, it's just been running narrative. And he said, and he did, and he went, and he jumped, and he ran, and he created. Now, let us make man in our image. And he begins this long speech. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the creatures. And then God grants them food from that which He has made. God saw everything that He had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, day six. Now this is the end of the work week, but it's not the end of the cycle. All of our English Bibles have chapter divisions that are there, not given to us by God, The chapters were put into our Bibles between 1250 and 1500 years after Jesus. Way after the time when our, sorry, that's when the verses were added. And chapters around 500 maybe, the 500 years after Jesus, the these are simply, they were put into our Bibles simply to help us get around fast. And here's one chapter break I just wish they wouldn't have done. That should have gone later. Because the story's not done. We're only up to six days. Now we need the seventh day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. God rested. That's where we're at. Sovereign rest. I'm going to talk about this in a second. But what I want us to see is that we're heading somewhere. We're heading somewhere in our story. Sovereign rest. Most of the original audience and most of us like to camp on the fact that we found ourselves. Look it, there we are. Mankind, day six. He took the longest time to talk about us. We're the climax of his creative activity. And yet, Genesis won't stop there. It moves us like a goal to be reached down to a seventh day. And it's going to set a pattern for Israel's existence. What I want to do is, is step back now and just ask ourselves, okay, in this, pas- in this passage, why is it at the front of our Bibles? What is it telling us about our God? What is it telling us about us?
I say it's telling us that God is supreme. What in this text would point in that direction to you? He's the creator, we're the created, everything else is created. What's the implication, therefore, of everything else? Subject to him, who is the ruler over all. If you want to understand what it means to live in my world, to to follow me, put, put things into perspective. I'm the great starter, and And it's all supposed to end with me. I'm the supreme sovereign over all things. I control everything. For for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, they were created through Him and for Him. God being supreme. Now just consider what this means in relation to different worldview perspectives that are very active even in our day. Different ways that people think about reality. If you're talking to a non-believer and they say there is no God, all there is is nature, how should you process that Or how should you help help your kids if they happen to be at a school where the textbooks are teaching this? We call it naturalism. How, How might Genesis 1 engage that? Just a simple answer, basic observations. Somebody define naturalism first off. That's right. So it's only the material. That's all that there is. There is nothing else. Right, right, right now, there's a man in, in my church. He's no longer a part of our church. He asked us to remove him from, his, from the membership, but he continues to come with his family just so he can be with them. He was raised in the church. His dad was a pastor, and he's come to the conclusion that there is no God. All there is is nature. And we can say Genesis 1 at least would speak differently. I Yesterday here I took a walk down through the field and um, came around a tree and all of a sudden I, I saw this fascinating object um, it, it had a metal pole that was sticking up like this and a, a basket around the bottom. This is how I would describe it. This is what it looked like to me. And there was um, kind of a, a web that stuck out the top and there was chains that came down into this, this basket area. Um, and I was just awed that uh, it just happened right there in the middle of the woods just to appear on this uh, green. And... Um, we don't think that way. We see something and we identify, oh, wow, that had a maker. 
What tells you that this had a maker? Well, what else? Design, order, purpose, detail, specificity. Just the person who made it put their name on it. You know, it's like you go down the road and you see six Coke cans scattered around. It's kind of a random thing. You go down the same stretch of road the next day and you see those six Coke cans labels all facing exactly the same direction, spaced exactly the same space, you know, in between uh, and standing up, right? What does that tell you? A heavy wind, <laughs> right? Um, right, right, and and so so that uh, scientists have they've called that you know, the the argument of intelligent design, and whether you're an old earther, a young earther, an evolutionary creationist, you that there's people that are saying that that's one of their key arguments. Look at the 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 intelligence that has to be behind this. It, it points to someone greater. Who can define pantheism for me? God Anybody know? Everything. Pardon? God is in everything. Sure. Uh, now, the Star Wars um, worldview kind of developed through the movies, but there was, you know, there was a point where it was just the Force. And the Force is in everything. And you can tap into it. And then we learned about the Metachlorians and um, so things changed a little bit. But that idea that, that there's power to be tapped into everything. God is in everything. Everything is God. That, that there's this inner working of everything, pantheism. All is God. And Genesis would say, no, God created. God created. There's a distinction between what was created and Him. What is polytheism? Many gods. Now, we have to be careful here because the Bible uses the term God even to designate the angels. So it uses a, a term of divine to even designate lower beings. But it's very clear that every angel is merely a servant a messenger, an actor in a greater drama where there is only one chief director. God created the heavens and the earth, and in those heavens is every spiritual force. So in one breath, we can say there is only one God, and in another breath, Paul can say behind every idol is a demon, and demons are real, but they're created Remember this text? Here, it's right here. By Him all things were made. This is by Jesus. All things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What are those invisible things? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. In chapter 2 of Colossians, I think it's verse 15, He triumphs at the cross over the very rulers and authorities that He created for His own glory. He created them. They were created through Him and for Him. That's how big our God is. 
over all things. Dualism. So there's the the side of light and there's the side of the dark. The dark side. And then Anakin meets up with the admiral? Emperor. Emperor. And they're is he the emperor yet? I, uh, yeah. uh, so he's, what was he? The, ad, the chancellor. And, and they're, they're talking about the dark side and the side of light. And he says, and Anakin says something like, well, isn't everything, isn't the dark side all bad? And, and the chancellor says, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. But what he's portraying there is a dualism. That there are two competing powers. There are. But Genesis 1 will not let you treat those two competing powers as eternal. Nor will it let you lift up the devil and make him as an equal to God. Genesis 3.1 is going to say, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. There is only one God, and Satan is creation, and he will be put down by the Creator at the end of the age. He is working real evil. And yet, he is... If this relates to this point here. God is the value setter. I'm just trying to say, what does this tell me about my God? What is, what is useful in this passage? Yes, supreme over all things. Over all things. Everything derivative. And therefore, He's worthy of greatest praise, but I'm also dependent on Him. He's sovereign over all. What He says goes. And this is fascinating to me. He declares something good. Verse 4. God saw the light that it was good. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth. The waters He gathered together, He called them seas. He saw that it was Good. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, various trees bearing fruit. God saw that it was good. Verse 18, he made the lights on the earth, the, uh, set lights into the expanse over the earth to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. I want to suggest this fact is one of the elements that tells us that a dualism, two eternally competing powers, is not a true depiction of reality. Why would I say that? Why is it that if there is light and if there is darkness and that they are equal in all aspects, that you cannot, the emperor, the chancellor is right, you cannot call 
one dark and one light, one evil and one good. Why can't you say that if there's two equally competing powers? Except that light overcomes the darkness. Light overcomes darkness in this chapter, yes. What else? God created light and darkness. He created both. They're both part of this heaven and earth that He created. How do you determine which is good and which is evil if there's two and they are equal? What? All that you have is two things. Okay, okay. I think I shared this story years and years ago. I was watching a movie with my brother-in-law. It actually was, uh, it was a hard movie to watch. It was very graphic. And it portrayed some significant evil, real evil. And afterwards, I couldn't just get up. Like, it, it, the whole movie, just I felt like I had just witnessed something that was... It was designed to move me. My brother-in-law is a naturalistic, atheistic chemistry teacher. And I said, if that beastly character that was portrayed in this movie was to enter into your home and hurt your wife and daughter, How would you think about it? And he said, I'd be angry. And I said, but, but would you, um, was it wrong? Of course it was wrong. Of course that would be wrong. I said, how can you say that? He said, be because it is. And I said, on what basis can you say that? Because you think it is? Because you think it's wrong? That person thought it was right. That's why he did it. I said, work your logic here. You've got a master's degree. Think about it. On what basis can you say, that man was wrong who just hurt my wife and children? It's wrong to you, but it wasn't necessarily wrong to him unless there's a higher standard upon which to weigh value. Naturalism means truly, you can live as you want to live, I'll live as I want to live, I am the God of my own world, I am the sun in the middle of my solar system. And Genesis will not let us live there. Because God declares things good. It's not neutral. It was good, which means there is a standard, one standard upon which to weigh value. All things are not equal. There is a single standard, and it is God. He is the value setter. He defines what is beautiful. He defines what is evil. And for we as readers, we need to recognize He is the value setter. I am not. Yet we too often are prone to want to live in the center of our solar system, having all of our family, all of our friends revolve around me. We live with an entitlement mentality that says, I don't deserve pain. 
rather than recognizing we are just one element in the constellation of God's universe going around Him. He's at the center and we're supposed to live for His glory and not our own. Just the fact that He's the value setter identifies something massive about our world. That He can declare things good rather than neutral means that there is only one ultimate being in charge and not two because then you couldn't, you couldn't discern right from wrong, good from evil. It's because He is good in His being that He can declare something else bad. See if you can track with me here. When I say that God is righteous, I'm talking about right order in the world. So people who talk about righteousness recognize that we're talking about right order. That's why the word right is built into it. Right order wherein God's at the top. God is righteous insofar as He works all the time to establish right order wherein He's at the top. And don't think of that as wrong. That's actually necessary. Because if God was to live for something other than Himself, if He was willing to let us, rather than calling us, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, if He let us live in a way that something else other than Him we could love higher and more greater than Him, if that was okay, He wouldn't be God. But God is righteous On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done. He rested on the seventh day from all of His work that He had done. God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy. When it says God rested, don't think that God was weary or that God was lazy. Rest is about sovereignty. It's about authority. He's established and now He can rest and oversee. Everything's in order. It's like when you start a business. There's a lot of work up front, but now you can oversee and control and direct. You can rest. What the fall does is it it doesn't take God off the throne, but it, it, it twists and disturbs the rest. But when it says that God is seated on the throne, what that means is this is right order. Right order exists when God has moved through everything in His creation and is now seated on His throne overseeing everything. He's at peace with His world. His world is at peace with Him. And this becomes a clarifying understanding for us why it is that Sabbath was the goal of Israel's existence. Week after week, they worked to reach rest, worked to reach rest, and that through Israel, all the world was to be blessed. Through the Israel, all the world was to enjoy Sabbath. That, that this not only tells us what was, it tells us what was ultimately supposed to be. And Moses is writing to his people, portraying God as righteous. This is what right order is. Live for right order. Here's how Psalm 132 words it. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. So he's... seated on his throne. And when we encounter him, it's worship. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. This isn't about laziness. This is about sovereignty. This is about him being in control of his world. 
It's about righteousness. He creates for the sake of establishing right order where He is supreme. That's how we're supposed to think about the creation week. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He's desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. All we're doing is learning about our Lord, which is good. Jason came up to the front and he began to talk to us. He prayed and then he talked more and more. Three sentences, only the first sentence has an explicit subject. Jason. I only used it once. Jason came up to the front, and then what became the subject of the other sentences? He. He began to teach. He prayed, and then he talked, and then he talked more. That's how it works in English, and that's how it works in Hebrew. But it's not how it works in Genesis 1. And I want to just ask ourselves why. Look at Genesis 1 carefully. Look with me. God is the only one on the scene. There's no one else there. It could easily have just said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and He saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness, and He called the light day. He said, let the air be an expanse. He made the expanse. He called the expanse. That's not what it says. There's no one else there. You don't need to add God but it does. So what we get instead is God called the light day. God said, let there be an expanse. God made the expanse. God called the expanse. God said, God called. God said, God saw. God said, God made. God said, God saw. God said, God created. God saw. God blessed. God said, God made. God said, God created. God blessed. God said, God, God, God. He's everywhere. Can't see it too well. See it a little better? Yes, we can see it. 35 times. Seven days, 35 occurrences of God, 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 God. This chapter with the pronoun could have let us know that the source of everything was God. But in saying God, 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 it tells us it's not only coming from Him. When you taste that watermelon, when you see the moose, you should think, God, 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 God. This is going out of its way. It's, it's built in. It's part of Moses' message. He wants us to feel, God, God. What have I forgotten, Moses? God. As you've journeyed through the wilderness, you've forgotten God. When you saw the giants, you forgot God. God made them. Therefore, if He is for you, you don't need to worry. <clears throat> if He said He's going to take you to the promised land, then if you're struggling with water, you don't need to worry. He's going to get you there. If you feel lonely, know that He hasn't left you. God! Yet so quickly we forget. And yet this is so fundamental to our very existence. It's right here at the front of our Bible. 
Live in a way that keeps God at the forefront of everything. Now, you and I come to this text saying, okay, that tells me a lot about him, but what about me? I want to know about me. And so we work through day one and day two and day three. Well, not only that, you, you, there's something that happened. Well, um, and finally we arrive at day six. Does anybody have a New American Standard in here? New American Standard. Nothing else will work. Okay. You got it with you? Okay. Everybody can have your Bibles open. Just track with me the verses as we walk through. Okay. Tom, what time did you tell them? Uh, they're ready. They're ready. That's good. Okay, everybody look, keep your Bibles open, keep your eyes on the text, but we're going to hear from the New American Standard, and tell me, well, I'll ask for all of you to help me, and then we'll hear from the New American Standard. Here we go. Verse 5, there was evening and there was morning, what does your Bible say? The first day. New American Standard? Help me out. Verse 5. One day. One day. Let's go to verse 8. There was evening and there was morning. Everybody else? What is it? The second day. A second day. Let's go to verse 13. There was evening and there was morning. Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning. Verse 31, there was evening and there was morning. Only the New American Standard follows the Hebrew text. Of all the modern versions, a first day, a second day, a third day, a fourth, a fifth, the sixth day. And I think it's drawing attention. There's something happening on this day. It's the only day we find ourselves. And yet as soon as we find ourselves, what happens? What do we learn about ourselves that's different from everyone else, everything else? Very good. Yes, that highlights day six as well. What's, what's, what is the God created all the creatures according to their kinds, but He created humanity in His image. But get that. We're very naturally prone to say, where do I show up here? This is about me. Okay, I'll show you where you show up. And as soon as we find ourselves, the spotlight is taken off us and put on Him because we're only imagers of Him. Imagers of God. Who am I supposed to be in this world? What do you want from me? 
God made them imagers of God. Imagers. It is, it is very possible that God is talking about um, the complex nature of His own being that we already saw. God created, His Spirit was there, and He spoke. That the let us of Genesis 1.26 refers to that reality. That could be what it is. That's right. No question. He's up there. We're down here. Um, this display of His greatness, and, and we, we could... Uh, we were talking about what does it mean to be made in the image of God earlier, the group of us. And um, our time is, is up here, and we have... I have to, I can't be done yet. Um, <laughs> you're not done either. You can leave, I'll keep talking. <laughs> um, an image, think about what an image is. It's a pointer to something. The image is not about itself. Going back to the Persian Gulf War, Saddam Hussein set up statues of himself all around Iraq. I remember seeing an, uh, a picture where, where the, of the full statue fell down. Now his goal was not to make people... I don't remember ever hearing that he had them bow before that image. But it was designed to do something to them. What do you think it was designed to do? Fear. Well, what could steel or stone do to them? Of what? Of what could be. If the person that this image represents were to show up. A reminder. Now, there's different types of images. Um, well, di different, different ways that we can see things. We can see things like taking a magnifying glass out and burning a bunch of ants. You look through that magnifying glass and you see something that is very small. And what does the magnifying glass do? It makes it big. We look at it, and the way the glass is shaped allows that thing that is small to be made big. A telescope functions in exactly the opposite way. What does a telescope do? But that's exactly what a magnifying glass is doing. It's taking something that is far and bringing it close. But what is the goal of a telescope that's different than a microscope? Show an image of the object show the object. A telescope is designed actually to take what is big. We can't appreciate it 
for all of its glory, all of its beauty. But when we look through the telescope, all of a sudden we can see what is big for more of its glory, more of its awesomeness, more of its splendor. It takes what is big but is too far away to enjoy and brings it close. Whereas a magnifying glass simply takes what is small and brings it close. The kind of image, when we're thinking about what is this image supposed to point us to, it is supposed to magnify what it's pointing to more like a telescope than a microscope. That is, God is massively big. And when people look through the lens of our lives, they are supposed to be able to visualize that which is massively big in a clearer, more understandable way. That we, as people, are supposed to in some way, according to this text, reflect our God, resemble our God, represent our God doing what He is doing, thinking like He is thinking. That His rule is supposed to be represented through us. Let us make man in our image, let them have dominion. He's the supreme sovereign over all, and yet we now as His image bearers, are going to represent Him on the earth. So God created man in His image, male and female. There's there's two of them working side by side in relationship with their Creator. And that this maleness and this femaleness intersecting somehow also displays the imageness of God. It's not just about dominion. It's also about relationship, reflecting relationship. That in the way that we interact, it's somehow supposed to be a pointer to the fact that God wants to interact with us. That it would... All this text that we've been looking at is is shaping how we think. It's shaping knowledge. It's shaping what a holy life would be. And that's the very language that Ephesians and Colossians, knowledge and holiness and righteousness are identified with what it means to be an image bearer. It uses that very language. and I wish we could go there. I'm understanding imageness to not be restricted to character qualities or restricted to active ruling or restricted to relationship. Those are three options that the church, in church history people have said. I'm understanding imageness to be much broader, to be whole-orbed, that in every aspect of our lives, our thinking, our acting, our reacting, it's supposed to display that there is one king on the throne of our lives, and it's this God who created all things. That he's supposed to be influencing everything about us, And that as people see us in greater and greater degrees, they're seeing God on the throne of our lives. That He's being magnified. They're getting glimpses of His character. They're getting glimpses about what He delights in, because I delight in it. I'm not fighting against His ways, but rather responding to His ways, surrendering to His ways, following His ways. And in doing so, reflecting that Him, reflecting His worth, reflecting His value, reflecting His priorities. Image Him. 
And it's this people that he then calls to, down here, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He just gets done declaring mankind is an image bearer of me, and then he says, I want this image to fill the earth. We can't separate the commission, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We can't separate the commission from the image bearing. Our filling the earth is not about putting warm bodies around the planet. I actually don't believe that the Tower of Babel fulfilled this commission. Because that was filling the planet with a bunch of rebels who weren't about imaging God. This is about imagers filling the earth with what? The glory of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, Numbers chapter 15, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 6. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth, fill the earth, ever expanding, taking my image outward, outward. God displayed to all the world that He's in charge, that He's in control, that He's worth pursuing, that He has value. That his definition of what is right and what is wrong is controlling me because I'm ultimately completely dependent on him. Take my image to the ends of the earth. What you're starting right now in the garden, as we're going to see in chapter 2, we're going to read the commission in chapter 2 that they're supposed to serve and keep or guard, be providers and be protectors. That's what Adam is supposed to be. And then God gives him a wife to be a helper within the sphere that God has placed them. But read through the lens of Genesis 1, what starts in the garden is to be ever-expanding. And it doesn't happen in the Old Testament times. Instead, they get kicked out of the garden. But expansion begins to happen, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. When all of a sudden the glory presence of God comes and rests in a sacred sanctuary once again called the people of God. Who all of a sudden, because they're identified with the ultimate image of God, namely Christ, begin to image that Christ in increasing ways and that those people filled with the Spirit of God that was once hovering over the waters, recreating, are now moving from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to Frederick, Wisconsin. The image of God being taken to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the original commission. Now what we have to see, and I'll close right here, is this. This command, be fruitful. This command, subdue, is given to a bunch of sinners who themselves have failed to subdue the promised land, and who themselves are dying rather than filling. That's what's happening during the 40 years in the wilderness. And believe me, they would have felt, if they had eyes to see and ears to hear, I can't do this. I'm not imaging you. That's our problem. How do we get there? And what I want you to see is, 
is something that you, you could miss, but you don't have to miss. God blessed them, and God said to them, the ESV put a period here. But in the Hebrew text, the blessing, I believe, gives clarity to what God said. That is, God doesn't have two acts here. He blessed them, and then the second thing He did was He said to them, fill the earth. Rather, the command to fill the earth and to subdue the earth is itself a blessing as opposed to a curse. Israel is living in a curse, and now God gives them a book where He frames their commission to fill the earth with His glory, to subdue the earth in His glory. He frames it in the context of a blessing. So we'll close here. I grew up in a church, a Pentecostal church, where blessings were something only Catholic priests did. I didn't... Blessings were not part of my growing up years. Prayers? Oh yeah, we prayed all the time. But then I grew up and I found out, whoa, Jesus is blessing people. He blesses the children. What is that about? Priests, Numbers chapter 6, bless the people. What's going on there? And if you begin to look at the blessings in the Bible, the ones that are written down, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. How does that differ from a prayer? Telling instead of asking. In a blessing, who's the you? Who am I talking to? May the Lord bless you and keep you. Trig, may the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May the Lord do that. And the Lord is in what we would call third person, whereas Trig is in second person. The Lord is the He... May, may He do this to you. That's different than a prayer. In a prayer, how would it be framed? Yeah, oh God, I pray that your hand would rest on Bob and bless his new experience in his new church. I pray that you would let his ministry be fruitful, that you would keep him from stumbling. May you, God, do this for him. That's a prayer. The blessing is, Matt, may God become increasingly your delight. May He become your treasure. May it move you to say no to sin and yes to Him. May it govern what you look at, what you click upon, what you listen to. May God help you work with integrity in your real estate business, if that's what you're still doing. May God help you be a man that draws people to Him rather than pushes people away from Him. May God do that for you. Amen. Both the blessing and the prayer 
are equally dependent on God. I don't have power in my words. They're both equally dependent on God to accomplish. The command, be fruitful and subdue, is couched as a blessing from God. What are the implications related to the fulfillment of that command? It will happen, but only how? Who's the you? Well, that depends on whether you see the focus here. You, Matt, be fruitful. Or whether the ultimate focus is here. God blessed. This is where the power is. And if you're sitting here, and you're living in the wilderness saying, we're not being fruitful, we're dying. There's nothing we can do to change it. You're the one who's declared curse upon us, and you alone can overcome curse with blessing. Hear this, brothers. You were trying to figure out how do we live in God's world? How do we image Him rightly? How do we carry His fame to the ends of the earth? We have to recognize up front, I can't do it because I'm in Adam until Jesus comes. I need you, O Lord, to work blessing over curse for me. This is not just work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You have, I worked harder than all of them, but it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10. It is working, working, working. Oh God, it's, it's engaging in spiritual disciplines. It's waking up and saying, I prioritize you. I'm spending time in the Word. I need you. I'm, I'm dating my wife. I'm serving my children. But oh God, I'm weak at this. I can't love my people enough. They're not friendly enough. They're hard to love. I need you to create in me what I don't have on my own. God, I need blessing to overcome the, the uh, hold off of curse that's still in my life. Work in me what is pleasing in your sight. Help me be the man that I'm supposed to be, the minister that I'm supposed to be. So for a people living far from God, this text would have given clarity about who God is and who they are in His world. And it would have framed it all with, if I'm going to live for you your way, I'm going to need your help. This pushes us to the life of faith. The problem I'm part of it. The solution, it will come solely from God. And his ultimate goal is that an image bearer would rise who would carry out his mission to see his glory spread to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you're our help. Meet us in these days. As we continue our study tomorrow, as we eat over pizza tonight, as we rest, meet us. Where there are areas that we are not reflecting or resembling or representing you well, help us not go to bed without addressing them. 
overcome curse with blessing in our hearts. You are supreme. Help us trust you. Help us not overcome with, be overcome with anxiety. Thank you that you entered in and gave mercy. You gave us a book inviting us to something better, even though we were still sinners. You sent your word in the presence of our sin. And what you're doing here is simply pointing to a greater intrusion into space and time where your word will make new creation and not just original creation. We thank you that, that Christ has come. Be exalted in our hearts, I pray, through Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.